so guy nick mason sourceful of secrets of which we are um two-fifths right are we're going back out on the road in the summer across the uk we are we're, it's all of june so brace yourself what's it called it's called the set the control store what a brilliant name who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then you I might. did come up with uh, Nick Mason's all sort of secrets. You did. And in fact, that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's Is You Boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with, you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. goes up to 1972, with all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never yeah. heard, stuff that no one's ever Echoes, heard, frankly. Obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you and, know, uh, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum Opus. Yeah, I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. Was he, was he, um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Sourceful of Secrets, the Set the Control Tour. This week's Rock on Tours was recorded before the passing of Jeff Beck. Hello, Gary. Hello, Guy. I love what you're wearing. That's a fantastic shirt. Why, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and also, I love that you've got on a blue hat. For a blue, a... For a blue day. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> oh, me and you, we just love plus one, aren't we? We are love plus one, exactly. And in fact, I've come all the way to Durham, so I'm actually north of a miracle right now. <laughs> so if you haven't sussed out who's on, then you really shouldn't be listening. But it's Nick Hayward, Haircut 100. Haircut 100. And, and the burning question is, Gary, because I see you've got a nice knitted jumper on. Yes. Is it tucked into your trousers? It's not. It should be, though, shouldn't it, if it was 1981? It was 1981. Mind you, I think that says more about how thin we all were that you could even contemplate tucking a jumper into your trousers. Now it's just a thin personality. <laughs> no, the other day I mentioned you were tour managing and then we never mentioned it again. And so there's lots of people out there thinking, who's he tour managing? Is he just really on the road again? But you I, are yes, on the road. I am on the road. I'm actually, I'm currently, I'm going to give him a plug. I'm in the fabulous 40 Winks guest house in Durham, who have given me a room specially uh, to do this podcast. Um, although I think Georgie might walk in at any time. Because, yeah, I'm on tour with my missus, Georgie, Georgia Bing, who is a children's author. She wrote the Molly Moon books, but she's got a new book out um, called Albie the Glowing Cowboy. And we're going around schools. She's talking to schools, talking to kids to try and, to put, let them know that they're all writers. So that everyone can write. It's a creative let, thing. It's really yeah, lovely. Yeah. So you laying out the trestle table and organising the piles of books for her. I, and... I'm helping her setting up the getting the speakers connected. And yeah, there's we've got all sorts of props and stuff. Uh, I went and got some posters printed. Uh, that. I am a uh, proper tour manager. Are you wearing corduroy with, with, with elbow pads? <laughs> are you smoking a no, pipe? No, I'm in black and wearing shorts like a proper crew. <laughs> wow. Okay. So, um, yeah, Nick Haywood. This is this is going to be really nice digging back into the eighties, obviously. But we'll also bring 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 you up to date. And I know he's doing a show very soon with Steve Norman from Spandau Ballet. Oh, there you go. Because yeah, no, we'll talk about this with him. Because I was wondering because you were pretty well established by the time they showed up, weren't you? So yeah, 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 yeah. Well, yeah, they, they were the new kids on the block. Yeah, they sort uh, of made pop happen in a way it was that absolute turnaround where it was like kind of them abc and all that sort of yeah. stuff seemed to happen at the same yeah. time and suddenly yeah. everything went sort of funky poppy didn't it anyway he's waiting for us in florida apparently uh well let's get him on welcome to the rock on tours Okay, guys, I'm ready. But it's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. I've listened to a few of them and they've been really good, man. I've been sitting in the back of the car coming into London. They're brilliant. Thank you guys for still being around, still making music, still being into it, and doing this podcast. It, it's uh, it's fabulous. Well, I get the feeling that us three should go for a pint. That's what I think. I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah, get good at something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. Keep on rocking! It's funny, for a while we were worried because you were a bit late that, uh, that Nick Haywood had gone wayward. Yes, well, Wayward Haywood has, has been passed around the band 
like a rugby ball many a time. You know, <laughs> you sound gorgeous. It's so nice to have someone who's got a mic. Ah, right. Well, I was trying to get it through the duet, and it's set to sound richer oh. and stuff. But but it's nicer when it's like less rich, if you know what I mean. Does it sound okay? We don't need a duet. Good. I mean, if you what, if you who have you got there? Martin Fry or Tony Bennett? <laughs> <laughs> now, Nick, you and I have had two meetings over the years. Uh, we we spent a very enjoyable evening. Uh, a dinner at Mark Fox's house. Yes, in Notting Hill Gate. Your percussionist who then became so yes before the divorce. Right. Wonderful, you would. <laughs> oh. Yes, you indeed. Married, yes, lovely house that was. <laughs> we were, yeah. It ended very badly. And um, but uh, the other one, which is really funny, is which is years before. It was one of the first sessions I ever did. Uh, it was when I was in the Australian band Ice House, and our agent John Giddings, who is now Source for the Secrets agent got me the gig to go and do a, a Top of the Pops pre-record or re-record with you. Mm. Well, I wasn't even going to do Top of the Pops. I just had to go to a studio where you and your band were and not do anything. Oh, that's a good gig. Where that sounds like a perfect gig to me. Yeah. Not remember. Yeah. And, um, How did it go? <laughs> I can't, well, the only thing I really remember is I met, it was the first time I ever met Tim Rennick. Oh, who wonderful. Who I played with in Pink Floyd. But I'm thinking, because I know Pino played on that album. I don't know if it was Pino Palladino who was meant to be doing Top of the Pop. That would be the start of my lifetime of getting jobs because Pino was busy. <laughs> what a band. I mean, you know, in hindsight, well, what a amazing. band. I mean, talk about taking it for granted. You had, you had all the boys. You, you, I've got to say, the, the list on your, your solo album is so impressive. Well, I met Pino in a little demo oh. studio in uh, Islington, actually. And... Uh, just chatting to somebody and I was doing a, a song, a sort of demo of a song. And I said, you know, anybody that's got good at fretless? Because at that particular time, Christian, do you remember by the China crisis had just come out and yeah, it was just yeah, lovely, yeah, yeah, yeah. all this lovely fretless stuff and Mick Khan. And uh, it was flowing around, wasn't it? It was in the air, like fretless bass. There, there was a moment where everyone was playing fretless. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of us just Actually, sort of Actually, I think he's right, you know, yeah. Mick I would, would you not say he was the biggest influence on people turning to the fretless? Oh, yeah, by far, yeah. Yeah, probably, I mean, if, you know, if we asked Pino, he'd probably say it was Mick Khan that made him get a fretless. Who knows? I don't know. But it'd be an interesting subject, wouldn't it, to do the kind of, like, history and the evolution of the fretless? Yeah, if you wanted your audience to quite, quite interesting. slowly <laughs> turn off. It's gone in and, out of, in and out of favour, hasn't it? You know, it's, it goes in and then sometimes it becomes like, the sound you really don't want to hear. And that's what we've had. You yeah. know, we've gone through the 90s. I mean, fretless bass in the 90s, I mean, forget it. You know, Britpop no, and, and yeah. fretless bass. Are like, <laughs> you know. That's right. You need a big, you need a big fret for, for Britpop, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> and, all, all fret. It was all fret, wasn't it? Yeah. But then again, the, the ponytail made a, a, a reappearance in the 90s, didn't it? You know, so the fretless bass used to go hand in hand. With a, oh, with a ponytail, with a ponytail, and the waist, and the waist. Yeah, cone. yeah. Who played ponytail on your album? I can't. <laughs> <laughs> I actually fell into the ponytail around about two thousand and one. I, I was in it, living in California, and my hair got longer and longer. And it was that that moment when you think, well, I might not have hair in ten years or twenty years. So what, what am I going to do with this? So I went full long. And uh, then tying it into ponytail, and there was that moment where I thought, "Oh my God, I've turned into that guy." I always, I always didn't want. I, didn't, just, I spent two decades taking the piss out of those guys. That's amazing to see, because yeah, because because you are so. I mean, you look ridiculous. There's, you've clearly got a portrait in your attic because um, you look so fantastically preserved. But your hair is has always been that. I, I can't imagine it's ever grown. Being, like, I've never had it cut. Can I just say, if we had a sort of a court sketcher who was just drawing the last minute, two minutes of conversation, <laughs> we would have had now a portrait of Nick Beggs. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Anyway, anyway, I must say, his, yeah. his fretless is pretty, is out of something else, isn't it? His yeah. fretless. And, and that's he, the yeah, stick. Yeah. The Chapman sticky plays? Yeah. Oh. oh, yeah. I actually did a bass off with him once on a radio show where we actually did Deliverance. Um, did a ding, 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 ding with him playing the sticks. This is a Chapman move from Jamiroquai. Sorry, not Jamiroquai. Am I talking about? Uh, what was his first band? 
Kajagoogoo. Sorry, I knew there were a few syllables in it. Kajagoogoo all the way to Prog Rock and Stephen Wilson and and the, the rest, right? I mean, this is yeah hugely yeah. credible musician. I say that now backtracking in case he's listening and getting upset. No, we love Nick. We love Nick. Yeah, what fantastic. do you remember, Gary, being in that club in South Ken, outside the station, just across the road? We used to go there quite regularly. That's where I remember hearing uh, Kajagoogoo's record for the first time, in that club. Do you remember it was like a bar and a little, sort of like, tiny little club at the back? Like, what was it called? Guy, do you remember? Just across the road from the, the station. Guy, guy knows all of them. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I can't think of that one. I mean, it sounds like it's near where, where Bruges is. And, and, we, and we first heard, wow. we, to think of that, Nick, we first heard Kajagoogoo together. And yeah, I mean, it was that? like, I remember discussing the bass Did with you. Did you call an immediate war conference? <laughs> 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 we, yeah, yeah. You, so you look, you look like you've got a permanent setup there in America. That's, this is this your home now, or do you have two homes? Um, well, I've got have an American wife, so we live here for the winter and then there for the rest of the year. So we live in the UK mostly, but it's just coming here. And uh, so this is a just it's all I really need with my setup. It's been like that since my flat in 1982. So I just need some speakers. It used to be a drum machine, but now it's a duet. A yacht. I, yeah, I can carry this. Yeah, that's a, that's how big my yacht got. I have to say that toy yacht <laughs> is so you. It's not a toy, it's a model, not <laughs> a toy. It's, it's so, even got a name. So what's it called? Uh, Wind Moth. Nice. Was that a such song? Yeah. <laughs> I can't imagine. Well, it's just, yeah, there is a story behind it, but it's too boring for this podcast. It's hard to it rhyme. To... Gary and I are now racking our, uh, we went quiet for a second there as we racked our brains, go, fuck, what album? <laughs> I was, I, I was Wind so... Moth sounds a bit fretless, doesn't it, actually? I could definitely <laughs> yeah. imagine a, j a jazz album called Wind Moth, or a band <laughs> yeah. even. I was trying to rhyme I'm going to see Windmoth. Like <laughs> Maybe that'll be us going to see Windmoth in a few years with a fretless bass and with jazz Nick, hats. Nick Begg did it. Yeah, <laughs> we're, we're being a band with Nick Begg's called Windmoth. Nick Begg's Windmoth. That's what <laughs> I want to see it's that. It's very close to Wim Hof. Live at, Mon live at Montreux. <laughs> Triple album, obviously. Yeah. Oh, oh, listen, mate, we, we, we do need to talk about those early days. Uh, obviously, yeah. uh, Steve Dagger reminded me, Steve Dagger, who managed uh, Spandau Ballet, reminded me. Does he not manage them now? That, well, he, if Spandau Ballet exists in any form. Yeah, yeah. Well, it does. It, it always will. It's eternal, isn't it? I mean, Spandau Ballet is there. When, whether we like bands or not, whether they're together or not, they exist and people love them. And so we should cherish them all. You're absolutely That's what I think. I mean, the, to me, the specials, I know Terry's now sadly not here, but... The specials are the specials and will always be, you know. That's a, that's a, no, and that, you're absolutely yeah. right. I mean, it's like it's, saying, you know, yeah. Psycho exists, right? They're not still filming it. Those actors aren't mm. around, but it yeah. still exists. It's out there yeah. as a piece of art. And, and of every yeah. film yeah. you could have thought. Not the sound of music. <laughs> Not... <laughs> okay. You're right. But I'm just thinking of something iconic is what I was thinking. So, um, yeah. and, and, you know, we think of that. We know these records still exist because people still play them. I mean, you're, you, and, mm. and Pelican West is coming out as a 40th anniversary special edition very soon. But you're right. The bands sort of do exist, don't they? They exist in people's, in people's hearts they, and, and mm. in, in their history. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, there will be people discovering Psycho for the first time, and it will be their film. There'll be somebody discovering Spandau Ballet, Haircut 100, you know, the specials. And I've, I've met people that, you know, just got into the specials or something, and they're just they're, they're doing that. And, you know, California, that was a place where the specials were huge and getting bigger and bigger as it goes on. Uh, sometimes just countries and places and cultures just grab hold of a band and some music, and they run with it. It just resonates with them. Well, it's interesting, is it? Because that whole Scar thing, how that shaped so much American 90s music, yeah. didn't it? Um, yeah, No Doubt, I think it was, uh, that oh, were really called, influenced. No Doubt, yeah. for instance, yeah. But, but there, and there are, there's others, there's other bands. Yeah. We need so to go anyway. back to your influences then. Um, yes. And, and you as a, as, a, as a young kid growing up in, hmm. growing up in, fill in the gap. South London, you know. I mean, the influences were, well, I, I would imagine we're pretty similar, you know, because we were, 
brought up in London and, you know, and influenced all the same, it had all the same influences, but, you know, how we filter them through, I, I think is, is, is different and unique. It's why, it's why Spandau Ballet became Spandau Ballet. You know, all your unique influences all gelled in rehearsal room somewhere in Islington. And they, it like exploded. But, you know, that, that, that moment when you think we're going to be serious, we're going to be a band, we're going to do this. It's when you have to throw all the influences away and be something new, you know. Yeah. Uh, that's that's the moment. That's the moment where you really do have a have a chance at actually being offering something new to the table. You know, you know when you because you've been cutting your teeth up until that point, haven't you? You've been kind of like being like your heroes. I mean, we were like Talking Heads for about a month. So much like Talking Heads, we we could have done Talking Heads. I think we played at the Wellington Waterloo, and and trying to oh, jump on the yes. mod scar revival kind of thing and we were just like talking heads and it was just kind of this guy come in and says you're not mod you know and uh i did i couldn't argue with him it was like no we weren't really but we had hush puppies on so you, you had know, a version a... of psycho killer as it were yeah it was a bit like that i mean we had a song called worldwide dangers you know and singing it in the world in the wellington waterloo at the height of the mod revival and i'm singing about worldwide dangers and going oh my god yeah scratchy and i was into the feelies as well and just like american american music you know uh what about you as a kid Jonathan richmond and the modern lovers oh, yeah. you know i love the simplicity of all that music well actually yeah. thought, how can they be that brilliant and that simple i think there's something in this in the in that there is a kind of wry oblique slanted side eye look at the world uh in a kind of pop tongue-in-cheek sort of way that jonathan richmond even talking heads do that certainly mm. was what i feel you were doing at the same time or eventually successful yeah i mean for the, for the early influences were jazz because it was my father and he he was just into jazz and big band you know i got to see oscar peterson which was amazing uh, ray charles and count basie on wow. one bill uh woody herman just so many so many greats it was just uh, I didn't know what they were, what they were. I was just going along with Dad, and I thought this was amazing to spend time with Dad. Like I loved spending time with Dad at his toy factory. You know, to get to play with Sorfiga for a whole afternoon, digging my hands in the green. You know that green slime that workers. Yeah, with, you know, you, you, your dad had a toy factory. Yeah, yeah, he. Uh, that was his dream. He was in the prints in Brixton. That my dad was in the prints. Really? Ah, yeah, was he a union I, man so too? Cause my dad was a union man in the print. Swarfiger at home as well. Uh, did he? <laughs> Dick begs Swarfiger. <laughs> <laughs> That's how you got those Just fingers to be so kidding. fast, doesn't it? <laughs> Swarfiger. That's a good name for a jazz band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, go, so yeah. Go on, toy, toy, toy factory. Explain. Yeah, me. he was. He had this lovely uh, toy factory, which, which I, I looked at. Uh, not so long ago and it's still there and it's it's a little a play group now it's a kid's it's like little what play kind group of toys did he wonderful make? what kind of Sorry? toys did he make um for the glc he made um he repaired toys and he made toys his his company was called gemco toys are kind of in haircut 100 nick hayward lyrics aren't they they i always feel there's a sort of nursery childlike uh connection dream world that that's in mm. your in your lyrics there's a yacht. There's a there's a model. Sorry, not a toy yacht right behind you. I don't know if you remember, you know, remember, but that time in 1981, 1982 was really naive. Remember how naive it was with Scottish bands as well, you know, yeah, like postcard altered images. Yeah, with the whole postcard yeah, thing. Yeah, it was yeah, really. Yeah, yeah. I liked that. I I've resonated with that because that kind of whole, you know, that this a it's not childish. It's childlike. You know, that whole innocence and naivety was really, it was really getting real in 1982. Everybody was wearing bits of fur, weren't they, on their collars, you know? Yeah, well, and, there's uh, some pictures of me and Martin wearing exactly that. I mean, we'd, we'd be running yeah. to Lawrence Corner to try and find stuff that looked like Elmer Fudd would wear it. <laughs> yeah, and it was... Arctic explorers. Exactly, it was about looks, wasn't it? It was very Boy Scout bringing their past into the present at that particular time you know everything that they'd done as a child was suddenly boy's own it was very much you know the, the image of the time it was, it was there were things like brideshead revisited on 
BBC as well, weren't there? Which I think was a big right, impact right. yeah. on people. And, and it, I, again, there was this thing of being smart. It was a sort of reaction to, you know, after the whole post-punk thing, the whole kind of... No, but you're right thing. as well, yeah, because Sebastian Flight had the teddy bear and there were... That, yeah. That sort of, uh, yeah. In, in a way, a kind of return of the British whimsy, which probably hadn't mm-hmm. had been around 10 years earlier with, with Genesis and the, and the sort of, or the mm. psychedelic scene, you know, nursery crime, etc. Yeah, which I'd grown up with. I mean, that was one of my favourite albums. You know, I was listening to that and going off into a dream world. You know, in, well, you in, had an older Tangled, brother, didn't you? Know, you? Uh, was... Entangled, entangled, um, ripples. You know, you can't listen to ripples oh, without ripples, going off into another world. Yeah, that chorus is probably you know, there there, there I was like I don't know nine, ten, just listening to this music and just drifting away and thinking this is where I want to go to. You know, first it was like you'd listen and you'd you'd hear Bowie going off and, you know, we'd go on holidays and we'd be driving through, I don't know, the gorgeous de Verdon at one particular point and it was this beautiful sunshine and then you've got Diamond Dogs playing and then you've got Pink Floyd playing and then you've got Dave Brubeck. And this was the soundtrack of the time. Music was just in the car always. It was in the house. It was everywhere. He was quite, he must, he was quite ahead then, wasn't he? Was he a young guy? Well, that was where my brother's influence came on because i had the the older brother who was the guy that bought all the stuff you know he was he was the pioneer he and he was in bands there. wasn't he he was in yeah he was in I mean, bands he, he would he? Yeah. he's the reason i know little little feet you know when i first heard rock and roll doctor yeah. you know it was just yeah. another thing and that he introduced me to the doobie brothers you know uh and and it and was all just, just... just to stop for a second doobie brothers that guitar sound you know, you're not getting far away from from what you eventually ended up doing with with haircut. Just thought I'd join. Yeah, yeah, it was average white band as well. I mean, I was in. I had all those albums, you know, with cut the cake and pick up the pieces. I was oh, yeah, in, yeah. you know, and when I, you know, it was I picked up the guitar because Pete was the guitarist. So it, guitars were in the house. You know, when he was out, I pop into his room and pick up that guitar, and he showed me D you know, D major, you know, practice it for ages. <laughs> then he'd be rehearsing because then with the house, the, the toy factory went, sadly. Dad's dream went down the, down the pan. And uh, so we had to come up with a solution. Aww. So he was spraying furniture white, which shows, shows the time, you know, you know, habitat. And everything was kind of going so white. So you have a white pair of speakers behind you, don't you? Well, I think, I think I've continued his dream. You know, he, he had a company called You Name It, We Spray It. And so he was spraying did you everything know? white. Well, brilliant. But did you know, back in, there's an interview with Paul McCartney in about 1965. And they talk about the, what ideas you'd have outside of music. And he said, I'd like a shop where you can just buy white things. You know, it's really hard to get white things, like nice white cups, nice white. So basically, the white company, Paul McCartney, had the idea that in what? the 60s. And what did your, your, dad, you did your dad spray a Beatles album? <laughs> so i guess now we we are now entering you guys meeting up as friends somewhere you and you and les and the, you know the, the the heart of what became your band mm. was it was it at school um well firstly we're all musicians in our areas with the dream so and the, the influence you know so i was in beckenham listening to going round to mates houses we put on seven seas awry pretend to be asleep at the intro and then slowly wake up, pick up our instruments and then mime the rest of it. So that was our band. I think we were called BC Clet. Uh, My pretentious sort of take on bicycle and bikes and the girl with the balloon, boy with the balloon and the, these things I used to see when I, I, I tried to get to bunk off school so that I could see that soaking up. Italian. You're talking about Le Bici, Italian films. You're talking about Labisi Clet de Bell size, aren't you? Do you know that yeah. film? Yes, oh, I love that. Yeah, you would love it. It's it's a short. Yeah. No, I know it. It's 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 on that it's on that DVD set of five yeah, films so it's, about it's London. Set in Hampstead, yeah, yeah. Park, and yeah. it's a it's a musical of some kind, strange. Ah, with, with a with a chap on a bicycle, and yeah, go on. But, but I'm just wondering, wondering, Nick, if some of this is you soaking up the, some of the inherent pretentiousness that was in the air from the Beckenham Arts ah. Lab. Well, I was growing up uh, ah. in David Bowie's. They Black room, chained to I the mean, radiator. This was it. Sorry. Fame was really close by. 
you know, I thought that the dream is possible because he, he, God of art, came from here. You know, I was, we were going to the uh, Three Tons. That was our local. Right. So we were going to his art lab. We were going to his place. You know, this was where he was from. You know, where was, where did he, you know, let's search. Let's try and find out where God lived, you know. And um, we were just, um, and, and it, it, it was, fame was always around in Beckenham. It was even across the road. Uh, outside of my letterbox, I used to see uh, Bunty James from Howe. She lived across the road. Oh, and uh, she, wow. yeah. And, oh, and yeah. she was a lovely lady who had a huge green car like a Lancaster. She was just she below Jack Hargreaves, wasn't she? In the, in the... Well, Jack Hargreaves <laughs> is a massive Haircut 100 influence. What? Massive. Oh, yeah. The back sleeve where Graham is dressed up as an adventurer because he, he's become Jack Hargraves now. He's living the Jack Hargraves life. I think we're all now living the life that we aspire to. You know, you, you, you aspire to these things and you become them. He became a tree surgeon. And uh, you ask, you go to Graham when you want to know stuff about stuff, about weather and about fishing and about surfing because he went down to Cornwall and he was doing What was, what was Jack Hargreaves' great show up? Was it the country show? What was that? Oh, um, Country Life. Uh, was it Country, country. Um, Was it Country Life? Was it called, no, called Country? No. no, no. People are. That's a Google. They're googling. Now. <laughs> uh, but I do remember it, and it was done but in Georgia a little sort of faux, in. sort of fishing hut, wasn't it? That he used to. Yeah. With his tackle. Yeah, and he had a pipe on, and he would just sit there, <laughs> relaxed and calm, and tell you stuff that <laughs> you really times. wanted to know. But that you know, oh, well, um, that's so funny because that is kind of haircutty, isn't it? That sort of. Yes, or yeah. I mean, that's what a band yeah, is. Yeah, you have though, that sort it? of Blue Peter kind of Jack and Ori. Yeah, another another huge influence. Um, I will right the way through. Uh, that's why all the TV shows I was like name dropping all over the as lyrics as like Marine Boy, and uh, Squidly Diddly and everything. It was it was all it was all in there. Everything was an influence. It felt like everything was colliding at that particular time. I mean, back to that that first band where we were rehearsing in front rooms and to Seven Seas of Rye and brilliant intros were setting me up, I think, as a songwriter, because I was thinking this, what's the thing at the beginning? What's, what is this? I didn't know it was called an intro, but I thought that's exciting. That that's exciting. The fact that you can And it's like, that happens on the other song called Pingball Wizard, doesn't it? Yeah. That's really exciting. I love that. That's what you've got to have in these things called songs. You've got to have really exciting intros that grab you. Um, so when I would go and play D, I just thought, okay, Seven Seas arrived, Pinball Wizard, uh, right, uh, here we go, D, you know, and you're just trying to find something. You're trying to find shapes and chords, and you realize that when you play this bar chord, you can play it all the way, you can play it anywhere. So I just didn't know about music at all, but I knew that you could play this F major seven chord anywhere. It sounds brilliant. And that ended up being favorite shirts where, where at first of it was just talking heads and it was just playing that for hours in my bedroom, just going like this, you know, wow, oh, I'm funking. I am funk now. I, I'm this close. To average, <laughs> I am funk. I'm this close to average white band, <laughs> you know, and then you, then you think, but what do they do there? You know, oh, how do we sound? How do we sound like that? So then going back to that first band, the uh, school band kind of thing, you know, I was doing that. Les was in his band, I think, Heavy Syrup in Croydon. And they were kind of I know somebody used to wear one of those. <laughs> <laughs> it was that German promoter, was, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> you know, Graham was full, full blown punk. You know, he was uh, when I first met him, he was actually head to toe in clash. He had the hat, you know, he had all the, the he had I think he had chains everywhere. And I was kind of like this tall, skinny chap looking like the Clash. I just thought, yeah. And he was going out with Alison, who was my, who Alison Blower was a key, because I think all the girlfriends were key players in, 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 a, in, in a band, you know, launching a band, definitely. Because I'd, I know this for a fact, that if, if our girlfriends had not decided to throw in the towel with us at the same time, yeah. we wouldn't have got it together and focused on being in the band because up until that point we were guys in bands and then you had 
you know, your girlfriends and it's very comfortable and we all meet on a Saturday because it's like you work and then you're rehearsing. So everybody's meeting up and it's, it's nice. And you, the girls drink tea and you do play your little songs and it's all great. Then when the girls decided to throw in the towel and we're just cut loose, we suddenly thought, right, okay, uh, let's do this, 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 do this properly. And that was that moment, that real moment of, we started hunting together. We started hunting clothes, uh, females. Um, we started hunting for culture, everything together. We, we became driven. We all, we lived together in Gloucester Road above a flower shop. So was that your that showed your commitment? Um, did it? This is sort of like let's go to London. Let's let's just concentrate. Yeah. Band. No more. I, I, I tell that to every band now. Even I say, you know, if you want to do it, then just you know, go and live and breathe being in a band. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, "What the f- are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass." So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. This episode of Tours is sponsored by AG1, the daily nutrition supplement. AG1 is a comprehensive and convenient blend of over 70 vitamins, minerals and other vital ingredients like gut-friendly bacteria, antioxidants and much more. Just one scoop of AG1 daily has all the nutrients you need to support your mental performance, energy levels, heart health and immune system. To be honest, it's pretty vital stuff for us because when you've got a life on the road and you're short of time or you're too busy to plan and prepare healthy meals, you're getting your podcast together, you're being shouted at and it's just a nightmare. AG1 gives me all the good stuff and helps keep my energy levels where I need, ready for showtime or doing the podcast and with a nice vanilla taste. It keeps me focused, feeling good, feeling healthy with its daily dose of vitamin C and zinc. And it's so easy to use. Just one scoop a day gives me over 70 carefully selected ingredients. Simple. Trusted by Olympians, F1 drivers and the rock on tours. So if you want to replace your multivitamin and more, start with AG1. Try AG1 and a free one year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first subscription. Go to drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. That's drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. Check it out. I mean, listen, I was lucky enough to be living at home with mum and dad um, who weren't comfortable financially, but mm. I, I, I had a job. I was working at the Financial Times. And I thought, if I'm going to get this band together, I can't stay in this job because I'm getting more and more comfortable. I get a wage packet every week. Right. It's going to have to go on the dole and like spend mm. all my time. And, and you were getting a lot for that column, weren't you, Gary? So, that's a pretty impressive uh, first job, Gary. I must say. Uh, my, first, my first job was actually, actually for um, Islington Health uh, in the Town Hall. Uh, but no, I, then I worked at the Financial Times as a clerk. And uh, but ah. again, I was getting too, I was getting too, um, in fact, once I messed up the, I had to calculate the, the rate between the dollar and the pound. And, and I messed it up and it printed. And I got called into the editor's office who really went crazy. And he said, you don't tell anyone about this. I'd done more to destroy capitalism that day. <laughs> you sank than, British than, Leyland, didn't you? Than any copy of uh, Marx's Worker Weekly or whatever. Um, but, but sorry, sorry. Yes, though, the commitment. Yes, the commitment. Yeah. That's it. Commitment starts at anything, doesn't it? Any, any kind now of I want to just adventure. mention what, what Dagger said to me, which is he remembers Steve Dagger because I'd forgotten I was talking about that. And then we got sidetracked with Nick Beggs. Or and he said he met you and your band in mid-1981 in a bloke mm -hmm. called Moles in his office in, in Marlborough Court. And a mole is John Baker. And he, John Baker went on to 
run and head uh, G Street Records and, um, you know, came a, a lot of American um, rap bands and, and bands in the, in the 90s were successful. Mm. And he said uh, he remembers you playing the tracks to him and uh, they were very Beatles slash monkeys, he said. Not not quite as funky at that time as as they became. Do you do you remember mm. that? Well, I, he said you're I, also I, transfixed I by by Mole's pet snake. Yeah, well, I thought it was Carnaby Street, just off Carnaby Street. Yeah, where Marlborough Court, like that court, a little court. Ah, that's it. Off Carnaby. Yes. Yeah, because uh, that was that was it. We were felt like that day we were about to really really make it. We were going to see Steve Dagger, Spandau Ballet's manager. We're having a meeting with Steve Dagger and we walked in and he has a pet snake. And we thought this was so rock and roll and he had his own office and it was in Carnaby Street. Well, yeah, yeah, Carnaby yeah, yeah, Street. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's with and, so, and because I know that Haircut 100 would not have uh, taken off had it not been for chart number one. That's why I've always got the total respect for you and, and the guys, because chart number one was definitely part of the whole Brit pop, the Brit funk revival that was that was going on you know it was almost like you were helping chris sullivan out you know it's like here we go here's a chance for blue rondo ella turk yeah. it's like you were suddenly spreading the wave was it the same time as tears and yeah and funkapolitan ABC, and yeah pig bag and you know it's hard to remember exactly i think mm. uh it, it was that was obviously an influence and i remember when when the club scene slightly shifted and mm. um the beetroot club started um in soho as you know one of our friends had started one night at the beat on a friday night and 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 bob robert elms was also doing a club called the sam ritz uh music mm. suddenly was we were going back and playing a lot more funk stuff which was partly our roots from being soul boys in the late yeah. 70s and so there was there was a lot more of that on the dj's decks with credibility yeah but yeah there was yeah, yeah. and i tell you why because there was a band called the freeze wasn't there southern freeze i nicked that i nicked that title Second, one of the songs Spandau did in the electronic period was called The Freeze, mm. and it's where it stopped. Yeah. I think there was there was definitely an influence of those bands, yeah. I was I was noticing that you guys were getting funkier, you know, and that's what it was, and it was in the air. There were the clubs that we all used to go to, but they we needed to dance, and I think that was what it was, and we we just we just danced to all those great records, and it was influencing. It was becoming a thing, and we're also getting better musicians, better as musicians, so that we could actually start to make the stuff that we loved because up until that point you do what you can do but when you get better you can do more can't you i mean that that's what happened i mean with us when blair cunningham joined that's when we could be a world class yeah how did that happen well i i just recall going to the it was called the mooch club but it was actually the wag it was a, a night that we they had the mooch club and it was uh going to see uh, Blair there, uh, he was playing with Shake Shake, who was uh, Mark and oh. Phil had introduced us through our, you remember Carl Adams? Well, Carl Adams was manager managed, at the time. Yeah. Yeah, Carl yeah. was an old Blitz kid from one of the clubs. Yeah, he was a Blitz kid. And Lacey Lady, he'd been, yeah. he'd known, he knew all oh, that. Boy, so Blitz. he was, so when he saw us in a, in the linen cupboard in the ski club of Great Britain rehearsing when, you know, because he used to come, how I met him was he, he used to a uh, supplier stuff that you put that's they just people put stuff up their nose and <laughs> yeah, like no, 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 no. i don't know what that was but anyway it was that my brother was uh just into stuff anything that could like take him off into even more glorious lands in the world you know he'd be listening to all this beautiful music but he was living and breathing it so he he loved that stuff so he that's how i met carl this guy poked his head around the corner and said you know you've who, who, you're banned kind of thing i was just i don't Pete's band, you know, Pete, my brother. You're like, yeah, yeah. And we we're just squeezed into this tiny linen cupboard, just rehearsing, doing. But Carl that, also knew Steve Dagger. And I think Steve Dagger was a sort of, there were a lot of people who wanted to be like Steve Dagger, you know, as so Graham Ball ended up managing. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. But all our influences started to appear, didn't they? You know, I mean, Robert Elms probably went to the Lady Lacey. Carl went to Lacey Lady. You know, Carl was suddenly like, there's this band I've just seen and they sound like funky and, uh, Wow, they, they, you know, and you know what it's like. He it was probably at that point where he was thinking, "Oh, I'm going to manage bands," and then suddenly there was a young band. So did he get room. you the contract? And where did he put you on? Well, up until that point, we were, we were kind of like, because uh, we're living at the 
at the, above the flower shop in South Ken. And so we're going up to Ken Market to get you know, hunt for clothes up there. But we also played at the college there. And that's where we, we played with it. We supported a band called the Tropicanos, where Lascelles and Herschel were the brass section, which is where we started. They were, became the brass section on Favourite Shirts. We invited them to play because that it was a an evolutionary process of because it was a, it was Les Graham and I that's what it was at first we didn't even have a drummer we found Pat and in the melody maker and it didn't quite work out because we just needed to be more solid and so that was when we found Blair at the Mooch Club you know he joined and then we needed sax and and Phil knew his mate Mark and you know he was this percussionist who looked like one of Spandau Ballet. He actually looked like one of you guys because we could uh, I guess you guys did. to be men. And we were kind of like three kind of oiks from Beckenham. You know, we were, you know, we were sort of 5'10 and sort of nine stone, you know, kind of thing. And no stubble, you know. Um, yeah, th thin enough to tuck a jumper Yeah, we were very trousers. indie. We were like indie. But when we <laughs> met you guys, at the, we, we used to go out and sort of like spot one of you at the beetroot or something. It's like pretty they're like six foot two or something and they're sort of like got stubble and they're only got hairy chest look at martin look at martin kemp's hairy chest you know and then tony it's like jesus Giant. look at this guy you know he's a big man is in condition as well you know he's just stand there like this you know he's a big fella yeah big fella but don't mess shape. with him as well and i like <laughs> no. that about spando i like the fact that you that, you know these guys were dressing art but you didn't want to mess with them i liked that kind of toughness about it yeah, yeah, yeah. Can, can I just band. have a sidebar on Blair Cunningham? Because, Guy, do, do you know who his brother was? Oh, um, was his, his brother Carl was a Cunningham, drummer, who, right? who died in the Otis Redding plane crash. Yeah. He played oh, the Barcades. Or the Barcades. The Barcades. Because it's a huge family, isn't it? Because the, um, the parents were musicians, weren't they? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you should hear Blair's story. It's quite something, you know. I mean, he's drumming in a local recording studio for Stax and the records that he's played on and how he cut his teeth and learned to be a musician and play less. I mean, and, and we met him, he was, he played with Robbie Johnson, I think, and the, the Jacksons. And uh, who was it that he was playing with? He was playing with a sort of like new wave band, you know, cause he later, he was in that crowd, that new wave crowd. And I think he joined the Pretenders later as well. For, for That's right, he did, yeah, yeah. He joined the Pretenders for a bit. So yeah. he's just, that drummer, he's in the pocket, as Matt Backer says. You yeah. know, he's in, your in the pocket. Weapon, wasn't he in haircut? Ah, oh, the joy to play with him. I mean, everything went up, you know. But also, you always had, because from day one, you always had really sophisticated horn arrangements. Your lines were all, that was all really posh. Yeah, I stuff. mean, it was, a, it was that, and then meeting Bob Sargent. Uh, where suddenly oh now this is this is an interesting one yeah because bob the fact that you bob Sargent, who produced all the john peel sessions mm. up to then wasn't he he was a, and you were the kind of star of his 80s if you will mm. he was like a real post-punk guy wasn't he he'd done the he fall rooster the, and it, well he'd had this sort of prog career hadn't he yeah. and then he yeah then he became an engineer and then um but then he became a, a you were that you were the start of his glossy 80s yeah will, and look at all those you? influences like that was happening he was the guy who was going to like make our pop record for us he was employed to be that guy that would bring it all together as a cohesive thing to make a pop record oh, and the, the guy beat. he'd done the beat hadn't he yeah he'd done the, that's why we went to him yeah that's why we signed to arista because of the beat so we were in there this was it we'd chosen to be like that and we're in there and we're just we're making favorite shirts because it was our funky sounding song and he turned he turned it into he turned into a pop record. That's that's the master of a producer. And but look at the influences that he came through to get to that stage. And yeah. like John Gallen, the engineer, I was just chatting to him. And it's the 100 Chalk Farm Road next to the Roundhouse, which is where I'd Roundhouse. seen the Stranglers and always wanted to play the Roundhouse. But here we were. Then you got Motorhead in the other studio, and um, and it's kind of like I'm chatting with John Gallen. And I said, oh, you know. How did you get into music kind of thing? And he's chatting and he said, I was um, I was tape upping on uh, Queen, you know, and you go, wow, you you so, you know, you was miking up Freddie Mercury. For, <laughs> for, for, yeah, for Seven Seas of Briar. And wow, you know, I couldn't get this into my head that this this was this was the dream. This is it all along the line. You just can't believe these things are happening. You, you know what it's like when you're just there and you suddenly go. You're speaking to somebody that you you had 
you couldn't believe. I mean, I never got to meet David Bowie, but it would have been that moment. And uh, because uh, also, like, um, he played, didn't he play Marimba on, on Love Plus One? Was it? Was that, have I got that right? Was yeah, it? I mean, that was he. That was he thought pop record. That's what he was a genius at making at that point. I mean, we we were learning, but we know this was we could only dream about something like that. I, so I need to to just to pay you back now because you spoke a lot at the beginning about being influenced by Spandau and John. Mm. When you came along with that record and your look, if you look at the next video we make, it's called Lifeline. We are wearing furry stuff. Mm. All of us. <laughs> and, and we are now thinking, yeah, you can be as pop as you like. Because, yeah. because before you guys, we all taking it very seriously. You know, really, start, you know, we had to, you know, it was much more, it's always, look, pop is art, but there was, it was this was more pure art, if you like. Mm. Now we're going to, we can be as commercial as we want. And I think me mm. writing Lifeline Communication was, was because you'd allowed us to do that. Ah, well, that that's that's it's lovely. So, I mean, I feel like we're all influencing each other at that particular point and and uh, inspiring each other. Um, but like a hotspot of things. I mean, Depeche Mode were. I mean, I remember they were appearing in Oh Boy and Girl magazines, and you know, so at that particular point, it had just been the enemy, and so suddenly Depeche Mode had gone really, really poppy. They'd really pushed the boat out and gone even more. So that made us do that as well i remember it was judy talking to a judy totten our uh, press agent and it, like do you want to do this and i thought depeche mode is doing it so it's the same kind of thing where you go well they're 100 are doing it you know, they're pushing it and then it goes further that way and then it gets to a point where it just kind of doesn't work anymore and it goes back doesn't it and it goes serious you know and it just goes through waves and um well i think what you know expand out obviously as it got bigger we ended up you know you kind of make arena rock records if you like yes we're mm. sort of writing um yeah for you there, there is a moment in in 82 when you don't want to do this anymore right you you want to you don't want to be in that pop band what um no i think i was just getting um it was getting serious so i was on the the coach which you know what it's like being in bands. It's the best job in the world on the coach. On the coach, in between gigs, you're just, you're taken. You're being just taken somewhere to another show and you're all together and that solidarity on the bus, can't, you, you can't beat that. It's, it's a wonderful moment and everybody used to have their Walkman on and listening to their influences. And so I didn't have a Walkman, I think I have a cassette headphones and i was just listening to the beatles um never heard such wonderful music i couldn't believe i knew penny lane but i wasn't listening to it so closely with headphones when you listen to penny lane on with headphones you start to tuning into music a lot more and thinking what was probably possible now you know on from doing this to now bob is showing us a new place and we're in the studio where seven seas of riot is made and Night of the Opera was made, you know, and uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, which is, I still think, is one of the greatest pieces of music ever made and recorded as well. They're just, it sounds like you've achieved another world there. That's, the, if you want to know what the dream world is like and, you know, what heaven's like, then there it is. Just listen to that. I mean, I, I, as soon as I put that song on, um, and, you know, that's that song, I know it's a big song for a lot, lot of people, but, it's, it's key to me because it was posted through my letterbox by my first girlfriend. And when it, when it landed and I put it on, you know, you just, these were the, these were the records. These were magical things. They're not made on computers. They haven't, not on a, made on a grid. They're not made to be, they're not just kind of like, oh, let's compile a vocal here and a bit there. You know, these were magical times captured at that particular point. Nobody's made anything like Bohemian Rhapsody. And nobody's made anything like it since. It, and nobody probably can. It's like when Bob Dylan talks about, I can't do that. You know, when he, you've seen that YouTube clip where he's talking on, I think it's 60 Minutes, and he's asked about whether they're a leather or right blowing in the wind, you know, these beautiful lyrics and stuff. And he'll go, no. He's very clear, <laughs> as Bob Dylan is. 
crystal clear about lots of stuff, but he yeah. knows he can't do that. And it's like that moment in time, Bohemian Rhapsody was made. You know, Queen didn't make it ever again. You know, it's the, these are so times. You, it's like ripples. That song felt that Haircut One Hundred had made what they needed to make. Yeah, we'd we'd made that. We'd captured that innocence. We'd we'd captured it. We'd captured that childlike garden. Like Gary's saying, he's listening to Haircut One Hundred. I was listening to things around, and you know, I was. I was also listening to not just the Beatles and, you know, some of the Garfunkel and all these wonderful things that I was discovering, but also just ABC and, and thinking, you know, let's kind of love what a grand statement that was. You can hear mm -hmm. that, you know, whistle down, down the wind. Can't you? Yeah, which is an amazing song. Well, that was it. Right. And I'd also, it was with me, it was Imperial Bedroom by Elvis Costello. I heard Town Crier and I, I thought that's something to aim for. Wow. That's, uh, you know, the, and Elvis Costello's delivery on that album. And that was made by Jeff Emmerich. And he was in the, he was in air. And Dave, my friend at the time, who was, who seemed to be relating, because I wasn't really handling fame at all well. I, I don't think any of the band were. You know what it's like. It's really weird. You have short time to sort of get to grips with it. And everybody deals with it in a different way and especially families as well adjusting to it because they're really affected i mean my mum and dad were so affected by it you know um and then their friends and everything it spreads fame is like a, a strange mexican wave uh and it can it's, it's like through all the families and all the mycelium you know it just like spreads through the forest and suddenly you've got this weirdness everywhere and you've got to adapt yeah guy and i are currently up to the bit where there's just one fat bloke who sort of half stands up and goes and gets embarrassed and realizes no one's <laughs> doing it <laughs> that's our mexican that's where we have the mexican wave of fame. yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, but how did you break it then to the, the news to, to the others well, I was, I wanted us to work with Jeff and I couldn't convince anybody. And that was, it was starting to, things were starting to go strange at that particular point anyway. So I've heard you say since like that in retrospect, there was actually a lot of it was to do with stress and stuff that you weren't dealing with mm. at the time. And it wasn't, it, it's kind of not, you, you know, with, with the passage of time, how you saw it then isn't necessarily no, how you see it now. now. Yeah. No, I mean, that, that's the thing about life, isn't it? You can see really clearly where you made the uh, not so good decisions and uh, the really good yeah. decisions and the really bold moves. I'm, I can think of, name all the bold moves, like walking into the enemy and saying, walk up to Adrian Thrills and that's Adrian Thrills from the film about Scar. That's him. You know, I'm sitting at his <laughs> desk and he's like, what do you want? You know, kind of thing. How do you get in here? And I said, oh, I've just got my band. And, oh, no, you've got demo tapes. What are they called? I said, Haircut 100. And you could see him kind of go, that's a good name. Uh, so I stayed. He kept me in the seat. It was like a really quick job interview kind of thing. Like, and that, so that bold move meant something happened there. And, you know, meeting Nick Logan from The Face in Carnaby Street with Adrian. Have you got any photos of the, or anything to share the back? Have you got bands? Yeah. You know, oh, here we are. And suddenly he put it in The Face on one of the early editions. And so we were becoming a band that was something. But it wasn't really. It was just, it's like my dad's toy factory. It's just a, a dream. You know, you didn't have the stuff, but you had the dream of the stuff. And just like the dream of wanting to work with it, Jeff Emery can sound like Penny Lane and to sound like Town Crier. You know, I'd had these songs written like um, A Whistle Down the Window Developed because that was a real slow burner, that song. That was, a, that, that was an indie song when we were like The Cure. It was like a forest. Was a, I loved that song. And so... Mm -hmm. uh, it was like out the window look what's happening skinny black trees they're not smiling <laughs> you know that, that thing you know, a little bit of talking is still in there so all your influence were laid really really clear clearly out there like bare you know and then was it more slowly that song had adapted into something else was it I put more, the chorus into it was it more did it feel a bit more lonely without the band was there a moment of regret um well, at the at the time, I just you know, it's, it was a clear decision of. Do you want to do this? Do you want to do? Do you want to? Because I was, I felt like I was always the leader, and I was leading, and at that point, I'd lost the leadership role. And uh, lost the band. So 
you work with Jeff Emery, who's you know, in, yeah, you know, in, 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 I was gonna say, but so, but, 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 I mean, well, realizing that dream was it, you know, that was that what you wanted when yeah, you, yeah, I it? wanted the, 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 it, yeah. the band. I mean, we'd still be, to, we would have been together all the way through and just making pop music together. That's that's that was the dream, you know, to be in a band and, and do that. I had no desire to go solo, I thought solo to me just looked like awful. You, know. you could have called yourself Haircut One Hundred, but then, or was there some who owned the name? You you came up with the, the idea, didn't you? Well, it's it was Les Graham and I's dream, you know, on the coffee table in the ski club of Great Britain, getting serious once our girlfriends had chucked us. You know, that was basically it. That was like, right, let's do this. We'd all been in bands before, and we'd all been had musical influence and done that. But this was like the moment where, I mean, we were something. All you know, what led up to this moment, we were Captain Pennyworth the week before, you know blue cereals whatever it was but suddenly it becomes serious when you do you know that feeling when you suddenly thought did you have a moment when you were suddenly called spandau ballet when it was like yeah it's, even though this isn't big yet this feels like it's going somewhere i really feel this yeah but and faith other people have to have faith so that guy you know adrian thrills and the, you meet nick logan and that they, they want to believe they haven't, they, mm. now, of course, you can just look it up and think, oh, he hasn't got many followers or, you know, um, you know, oh, I'll find a YouTube <laughs> video of them and uh, yeah, it looks all right. There was, there was only the imagination to, to spur on and create myth. Yeah. And that's what you did. To be fans as well. Of, of, yeah. Bill. Is it a play on Grecian, is it a play on Grecian 2000? Uh, no, it's not. It's, 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 well, it could be, but who knows with the, with Nowhere Land? You know, with, with Nowhere Land, <laughs> which we all pluck from, you know. Um, the ether. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's out of, it's out of the subconscious. So, and I love wordplay and playing with words. And as I was a then commercial artist, I was always writing down words and playing with them and shifting them around and putting different letters everywhere and trying to come up with things. And so, you know, walking out of a demo studio and seeing West Pelican Wharf and thinking, Wow, West Pelican, that would be a really good title for something or other. And, you know, I write them down now because I forget and stuff. But at that particular time, I just remembered that. And it was West Pelican for ages. That was the name of the, going to be the name of the album. And then somebody, Arista, said, I prefer it the other way around. It's like, thank you. Yeah, of course it's that. You know, and that's, yeah. the, that's the whole thing about people. Yeah, that, you know, Pelican West just... sounded like some island in Florida that you wanted to go. Yeah. Well, it's funny, but I... Well, if you put it West after something, West Pelican is something English and parochial. Something West, it becomes like American and glamorous mm. and exotic, yeah. doesn't it? Well, that, that, the dreams, I still think, uh, hang around and they're still with you because we wanted to do a TV series set in a marina. Um, we didn't know where the marina was going to be, but it was, I imagined it to be some kind of flipper, uh, something like flipper or... You're going to call it Ender's East. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> flipper meets the monkeys, right? Well, meets the monkeys, but also meets uh, the flying doctor. Oh, right. You know, so I saw a seaplane. Uh -huh. I saw a seaplane in it somewhere. <laughs> and some sort of Thunderbirds kind of rescuing Stoke Tracy family thing where the palm trees went down. And then many years later, only, the, only of late, actually, Sarah, my wife and I, had ended up living in Key West uh, in a marina. Uh, the guy who I'd recorded this song Kite with in the 90s, that sort of uh, took off here in the in in America in the just of his own esteem really it was just just took off one day it was lovely yeah it got stuck in a tree in the UK and then just took off here uh, on the independent <laughs> radio so I just followed it and had this new career over it it was lovely for a while but um, Ian Shaw the guy that recorded it in this basement studio sixteen track in Fulham in Shoals Road. He decided to move to Key West and built this kind of ramshackle houseboat and put a little studio in it with his wife. And they were living there in this, it was like Cannery Row. It was like a, I think Shel Silverstein lived there at one point. He had a, a houseboat there. And it's this little art area in Key West because it's too expensive to live in, in town. So all the arty people live on the boats. Um, and I, I went to see Ian and ended up like, living with him sarah and i lived with him on his boat we rented uh, downstairs and the the boat but one was called west pelican 
Oh and it was like that thing. <laughs> I thought, well, I'm living on it in the TV series, you know. And it's funny because we were chatting the other day. And I was down there visiting, uh, looking at the houseboats as usual to sort of like, we were going like, shall we get one? It's mad. They can blow away in a hurricane. It's a mad thing to do, but it's a brilliant lifestyle yeah, to now. actually not wake now. up and be on this film set of Flipper. But going back to and, my, and... my my sort of core illustrator, you know, uh, earlier, and I think, you know, if there was an architect reading all your lyrics, they would build Key West, uh, Key West would they? I mean, it looks like you're, yeah. all of your songs put on an island. It's it's a ramshackle place full of... of uh... I mean, when I was recording, I've recorded there and there was a studio and it was a mahogany house. It was all it was like a, it looked like a, it looked like a ship inside, like a galleon or something. And there was this drum kit in the corner and we used the, the drum kit. This, uh, Joey Marciano, who is a local drummer and diver, he came along and uh, played the songs and he had no idea about my musical background or anything. He would just come to play on the, $150 to play on some songs. He did 11 tracks in in one session. He just he was going, this is good. And he plays a bit like him. He's really kind of like got this kind of like, yeah, because he's used to playing in bands down there. You know, he's just like, because his blues bands play all, what album every is night. This for? It, is this for an album in 2018 called uh, Woodland Echoes? That I, Woodland Echoes. I love yeah. that. I love the only track on that album, actually. Is, is your son on that album? Well, he was engineering a lot of that and uh, producing because he's that's what he did. He did sound engineering at college. And so he's uh, he looked after Zach Starkey's studio for a while and he became a brilliant oh, sound man. engineer. Are you because you've got the 40th anniversary of the album uh, like next month, West right? Pelican. <laughs> like, next, mm. next month. And is there going to be some haircut shows? Yeah, with uh, the Shepherd's Bush Empire, um, 13th of May. I think that's. That was on. That be a trip it, it, for me and you, Guy, and I think oh, definitely. I was just thinking that's definitely a trip for us. Yeah, put us on the list. Yeah, it's it really good. We we put it on yeah. sale and it sold out straight away. We were not expecting that. You'll have to do another gig then, won't you? Have to if you sold it out already. You'll have to do some more. But you're also doing a shows, some chat shows, plus playing with my old mucker Steve Norman, aren't you? Yes. Tell us yeah. about that because that's coming up in about I, any week. chance to play with a band, you know. There's like it's so, so good. We're, we're you're you're coming back to London for that. Yeah, Pizza Express. Promote it, promote it, Pizza Express. Yeah, I mean it's gonna it's gonna be Steve and I, a few stories. We've no idea what we're gonna do, but we're gonna just do it anyway. You know, and I I've oh, played with Steve uh, a few times at various things, and the confidence that oozes out of that man on stage. Yeah, great music. He loves it. He loves being on stage, doesn't he? he does. Uh and I, I love that. He's got serious chops. Serious chops as a sax player these days. It's got to be said. Yeah, he's, he, he enjoys yeah. it. You know, when, when I'm, you know, it's like that difference of being, of playing with some guys, no disrespect, but some session guys and then some, and then there's band guys. And then you turn around and Steve Norman's beside you and he's going, yeah, you know, up in the air, that is. He's still, sliding down he, his he's knees doing, and he's really enjoying it. So, yeah, once he slid down his knees and he blew his knee and we had to cancel the American trip. <laughs> 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 Nick, thank you yeah. for coming on. By the way, I just want to say, because I didn't want to interrupt earlier, but my first band was a mod band and we used to play at the Wellington in Waterloo. Really? Oh, what were you called? Oh, yeah, that's where I grew up. I grew up in Waterloo. So ah, that's my that's local a great gig. area to grow up in. Alaska Studios. Did you ever rehearse at Alaska yeah, Studios? Yeah, all the, in the time. street next to it. Yeah, yeah. and Elephant. Yeah. Do you remember Elephant Studios? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I did most of all my demos in Elephant in Alaska. I am going to yeah. finish off because with this text that's just come through from Steve Dagger, who, who knows I'm talking to you right now, but isn't listening in. He can't do. It says, "Stop now! Stop! You've said too much. <laughs> you owe him a fiver." And I'd forgotten this that I'd we, he and I saw you guys play in L.A. at the Palace in 1983. Yeah, yeah. And I was over yeah, there. I with remember Spanish that. Ballet. Yeah. That must yeah, have it's, it's the there. Of haircut, it? it goes back 1982. You know, that was probably 92. Was that, yeah, still doing it. It's a decade thing, oh, you know. Oh. It's We're leapfrogging every decade. Well, Hopefully uh, we'll be leapfrogging <laughs> into many decades more. So what about new music? I just do that all the time. I've got a studio together now in the UK. So that's my hub, my creative hub, where I'm doing lots of uh, 
And it's funny because I was playing... Because you seem to bunch your albums together, don't you? You'll you do one a year for a few well, years. Well, I, yeah, I don't see it. I just, I'm, like, I write songs. I mean, that, if I do have one regret in life, because I, I don't dwell on anything like that, but I would, my, one would probably be output, because I write hundreds of thousands of song ideas, but it's like a trod on hosepipe. They don't get to go out there. I'd love to find a way to do that, and I think bands is a really good way to do that. But sometimes just, you know, getting all those songs finished, you know, I look at my phone and I think not in my lifetime. I haven't got enough life left to finish all these songs. So Les and Graham were over to visit studio and I was playing them some stuff. I was just recording because I just see them as songs. That's what you do. And you finish them to the best of your ability. And if that is a studio and it's on Logic and you've got a pair of speakers and you've got Duet and this is it, then this is how it will be. And I like things to sound nice and dry and here because um, I have no idea about sound engineering. So I just have it all here At the front. and I was just playing them stuff. And there was, there was quite a bit of funky stuff. And, and Les was going, I really like that one. So you think, well, okay, that's a, that's it then. That's a haircut tune. So you suddenly there's a uh, new album is coming. A new album yeah. is coming. Cause I, you know, I was just doing them anyway. And there's some of them that I don't think we'll probably do the one. You know they're quite clear about what's 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 haircut tunes and that's the one that, that everyone likes you know if it's because that's the way it used to be you know it's like gary you've yeah, got song yeah, and you you really like it and the band kind of like go yeah it's really good that one um you know and it's like that uh that moment with with coldplay when they're they're in the studio in this that, that famous studio in wales and they're Rockfield. That's the one, and they're in there, and it's to come up with a new song, and they're, they're doing it. And Chris Martin's busy coming up with something, and he goes and plays the guys when they're watching telly. You know, they've got a curry on, probably. Bit of disinterest about it until maybe, oh, I like that bit, and then, well, let's go in, and suddenly you're playing, and then you know, it's like, oh, the bass player's really interested in the middle bit. You know, the drummer's quite into the getting a searching for a rhythm. And then as a singer, a songwriter, you've got to like, you haven't quite got the chorus yet, but then you look over and there's a yellow pages there and you go, and it was all yellow. <laughs> and then you've got a hit suddenly because it's just all kind of come together in a very flow state, natural mm -hmm. way. And Nick, I, you know, may the world yeah. keep inspiring you. Uh, and, uh, and, and thank likewise, Gary, thank you so likewise much. guy, you know, Thank you. Oh, we'll come cheers. and see you. You know, we'll never be as young as we are right now. <laughs> yeah. You know, somehow you. I used you to see him in the it. beetroot club. Mm. Now I see him in Harley Street. <laughs> well, I've I've bumped into you a few times, and sometimes I have said hello, and sometimes I haven't, because as I said on in, in the email, I my hair was flopping, you know, and I thought I cannot see that Gary Kemp with floppy hair. That's so just you not. Cross, you cross the road. Yeah, in Fitzrovia. Because I mean, I don't. Oh, man, I go to Fitzrovia a lot. I'm always in Fitzrovia. It's a brilliant area. Look at my daughter. And nine times oh, out of ten, if he you. sees the ponytail, I'm finished. <laughs> <laughs> I see you, and I see I see Johnny Marr there in in Clutch. You know, Clutch Cafe. That's very nice shop. We like. All oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's some lovely clothing right, listen, in there. I mean, I, I go I, in there, and it's like haircut 100 clothing. All right, mate. All the best. See you, Gary. See you, guy. That was so much fun. What a wonderful, engaging yeah, he man. Looks so bloody good, still, doesn't he? He looks so good. It's terrifying. It's definitely a portrait in the attic. But uh, I, I loved all the history stuff. It was really, really interesting just how plugged in he was back then to everything. When you think of Haircut 100 as this pop group, but they were so, you know, coming from that whole place that yeah, you did. Yeah. You know, and the whole punk thing before that. Absolutely. Really. I, I do have to go because I've got him. I know, Clint. I know. The bard waits for no man. Um, so I w I'm sure I could have come up with a Shakespearean quote then. Uh, I was trying to think of a line from Othello, but I can't think of any. Um, Apart from the beast with two backs. That thank you to really Ben work. Jones for producing and all the other people who help us out making this uh, podcast for you every week. And uh, we will be back next week with uh, some other person in rock music, pop music in this wonderful world. Um, and until then, it's good night from me. And good night from them. <laughs> <laughs>